0: In the Old Testament, God chose Abraham and his descendants, born of Isaac, not those born of Ishmael, to be God's chosen people. Though much through much of their history, they knew they were chosen by God, but seemed to think God chose them for their own benefit and for no one else's benefit. In Genesis 18, verse 18, the Lord said, Abraham would become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. That was God's purpose in choosing the descendants of Abraham. The whole world would be blessed by God's plan and using his chosen people to set the stage and provide the culture in which the Son of God would be born and brought up. God's own people didn't recognize him when he came. God used them anyway to give his son as a sacrifice for the sins of the world and to provide the place Jesus rose from the dead and sent out his men to tell the world about Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus sent them out to give the good news to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the nations of the world, They still had a hard time understanding that Jesus wasn't only for the Jews. He was for everybody. They were still stuck in their centuries old tradition of believing that God only cared about the Jews. When Jesus walked with his disciples, he healed the servant of a Roman centurion. The centurion told Jesus he knew Jesus was a man of authority The Roman understood authority because he had many under his command. He knew Jesus didn't have to come to his home to heal his servant. Jesus could just say the word from a distance and the Roman servant would be healed. Jesus marveled at the faith of this Roman Gentile. On another day, Jesus went out of his way to visit a town in Samaria and spend some time talking to a samaritan woman who had lived a rough life she believed in jesus and went and told the whole town about him. the people of that town then invited jesus to stay and talk to all of them this was in spite of the fact that the jews and the samaritans hadn't got along with each other for centuries another time jesus had an unusual conversation the Gentile woman from Canaan in Matthew 15 verses 22 through 28 she cried out to him saying Lord have mercy on me my daughter is vexed for the devil Jesus didn't answer her his disciples told him to send her away her crying was really annoying then he said to her it wasn't good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs She said, yes, Lord, but the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus told her she had great faith and her daughter was healed from that hour. This whole conversation is disturbing. We know Jesus healed people. It looks like here that Jesus was trying to insult the woman. His disciples certainly weren't showing her any love. They told Jesus to send her away. It may be that at first Jesus didn't respond to her because she hadn't yet she hadn't been specific in her, her request. She asked for mercy and said her daughter was vexed with the devil. Did she want Jesus to give her a break from her daughter? Jesus didn't respond, but waited for her to explain what she wanted. He knew what she wanted. He wanted her to know what she wanted to ask him. Before she could do so, the disciples interrupted and told Jesus to send her away. That's when Jesus implied he was there only for the Jews, and she was a dog. Was he saying this to reflect to his disciples how they were coming across? They hadn't called her a dog, but they were treating her like a dog. Or was he saying it to inspire the woman to communicate more clearly? Her response was clear. She worshiped Jesus and was pleading with him to free her daughter from demonic influence. Jesus healed the Canaanite woman's daughter without even going to see her. This whole interaction was recorded by Matthew and Mark who saw Jews as better than Gentiles. Maybe they saw it as Jesus treating her like the lowly Gentile she was. John and Luke didn't record the interaction. Luke was a Gentile. Last week, we read about how the church didn't grow beyond Jerusalem until the church started to be persecuted. Members of the church got out of town, and that's when the gospel got preached to the Gentiles beyond the walls of Jerusalem. In Acts 10, God sent an angel to Cornelius, to tell him to send for Peter so Peter could come and witness to this Gentile Cornelius. Cornelius and his friends and family were going to come to know Jesus. God wanted Peter to be part of this experience. This was as much for Peter's growth as it was for Cornelius' salvation. While Cornelius' men were going to find Peter, God was going to give Peter a weird experience so he would be ready to meet those Gentiles. Peter was on the roof of Simon's house praying. He was also hungry. His hosts were preparing a meal. Maybe he smelled fish frying. Peter went into a trance. The prayer and the hunger were working together to get Peter in the right frame of mind to see a vision from God. In Peter's vision, God let down a tablecloth from heaven. It had all kinds of four-footed animals and wild beasts and creeping things and all kinds of birds. A voice from heaven said to Peter, dinner is served, kill it and eat it. Peter said, oh no, Lord, I can't eat all that, it ain't kosher. The voice from heaven said, God cleaned it, you can eat it. This whole experience and conversation happened three times. Peter was kind of stubborn. Then God took the tablecloth with all those delicious animals back into heaven. Now, Peter might have forgotten about dinner. He was trying to figure out the meaning of this vision. And while he thought about it, the three men sent by Cornelius showed up downstairs at the front door of Simon the Tanner. At this point, the Holy Spirit of God spoke to Peter and said, there's three guys downstairs looking for you. You go with them. I sent them to you. Peter went down and introduced himself. They told him who they were and why they came. And Peter invited them in to spend the night. And the next day, Peter went with them to Cornelius' house. And when they finally got there, they saw Cornelius waiting for them. He had gathered together all his friends and family to wait for Peter's arrival. When Peter and his friends and Cornelius' messengers arrived, Cornelius bowed down to worship Peter. Peter told him to stop doing that because he was also just a man doing what God told him to do. Peter then told him it was against Jewish law for him to be there. Jews weren't supposed to hang out with Gentiles or go into their houses. But God told him to forget all that because God created them all. And Peter was there because God told him to be there. He then asked Cornelius why he sent for Peter. Cornelius told Peter about how he was praying and the angel told him to send for Peter so Peter could give him a message from God. So here was Peter standing in the house of a Roman centurion who had invited all his friends and family to hear what Peter had to say. And Peter didn't know any of these people. He didn't bring any sermon notes with him, but the Holy Spirit of God gave him the words to speak. Peter told them about Jesus. He told how Jesus came and did good and mighty works because he is the son of God. He told them about the words of Jesus, drawing all people to believe in him and worship him. Peter told about how Jesus was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. He told about the sacrifice of the Son of God for our sins and how Jesus conquered death so that we might live. As Peter spoke, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. They began speaking in tongues and praising God. The Jews who came with Peter were amazed that the Holy Spirit had come down on these Gentiles. Peter commanded that they be baptized with water because they were already baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter and his fellow Jews were invited to stay a few days. It is interesting to note that some people today think that Jesus is only for them. Those other people who worship other gods don't really need to know Jesus because Jesus isn't really for them. All those other people are sincere in their beliefs. Isn't that enough for them? And what about the Jews? Why do they need Jesus? Aren't they God's chosen people? Why did he choose them? In Exodus thirty-four fourteen, it is written that we are to worship no other God because our God is a jealous God. Acts 4, 11 and 12 says that Peter told the high priest that Jesus was the stone rejected by the builders, and now he is the cornerstone. There is salvation in no other name. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. In Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, Paul preaches to the Greeks in Athens. Paul was always getting into trouble. He just would not stop telling people about Jesus. He would preach in one town, and then the Jews would stir people up against him, and he would have to leave town or get kicked out. He would leave town and go preach somewhere else. In Acts 14, it tells us that in the town of Lystra, they got so mad at him, they stoned him to death, or so they thought. They dragged his apparently dead body out of town and left it on the road. His friends were standing around him, grieving. They didn't have time to pick him up and go bury him because he opened his eyes and picked himself up off the ground. He got up slowly. He was hurting all over after an angry group of men had all thrown rocks at him. As he got up, I wonder if he was thinking about that day when he had watched an angry group of men stoning Stephen to death. On that day, Paul, alias Saul, had been part of the angry mob. He hadn't actually thrown rocks at Stephen. He stood by guarding the robes of those stoning Stephen. They had removed the robes to make it easier to throw rocks at the man. Kind of like kids putting their coats aside to give them the freedom of movement, to get serious about playing a game of basketball. Now, Paul was on the other side of the stone throwing experience. We don't know exactly what was going going through his mind as he got up, dusted off, and walked back into town. That's right, instead of running away, He walked back into town. Did he look at the stone throwers on the way in? Did he say, is that all you got? We don't know. Some commentators think he might actually have died and come back to life. It was probably at least a near-death experience. In the first few verses of the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells about a man he knew who was caught up into the third heaven and lived to tell about it. The commentary in my Bible says Paul here was speaking about his own experience. I think it was the experience he had after being stoned. Paul left town the next day and on on to the next town. So Paul went from town to town. The last couple of towns he had to leave were Thessalonica and Berea. And that's how Paul came to arrive at Athens friends had brought him there to get him away from the Jews who wanted to kill him. Paul called for his friends Silas and Timothy to meet him there. <clears throat> Saul knew God brought him to this city to tell them about Jesus. that's why Paul sent that's why God sent him to any city. Paul saw this was a city full of idols and his spirit was provoked by it. Many of us might go to a place like that and be impressed with all those beautiful artwork, all those beautiful statues. Paul knew they worshiped those idols and it disturbed him greatly. Paul met them where they were. He first spoke in the synagogues as he did in every city he came to. He talked to the Jews who knew the scripture. Paul knew the scripture. He was a Pharisee before he was a follower of the rabbi jesus christ he could answer any theological argument they could throw at him but many of them did not want to be changed by the love of god that didn't fit their lifestyle they were part of the religious establishment that gave them power and wealth and that was as they wanted that was all they wanted they hated paul because they hated jesus the son of god paul didn't stop in the synagogues He went out into the marketplace and preached on the street corners. Many Gentiles were there. This was Athens. They had their Greek idols, and they were proud of it. They didn't go into the Jewish temple. They already knew about that old-time religion. But now here was Paul preaching in the streets. This was something new. He wasn't trying to talk about the old Jewish laws and traditions. He was talking about having a relationship with God. They liked to hear about his new ideas. Paul met them where they were. Paul commended them for being religious people. He was impressed with all their idols. He noticed they also had an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. There was no idol on this altar because they didn't know what this god looked like paul told them he was there to introduce them to the god they didn't know they had built an altar for this god but they didn't know him paul talked about how powerful this unknown god is he made everything that is so men do not need to build him a a shrine or a temple to live in He made everything we might want to use to build him a house with. He can make his own house if he needs it. He doesn't need anything a man might want to give him because he created it all. He gives life and breath to all men and all things. He created the first man and determines all nations and where they live. God did all this and does all this in order that the people he created might seek him and find him, though he is already very close to each and every one of us. In him, we have our life. We are his offspring. For that reason, we shouldn't think his divine nature is in gold or silver or stone of idols. Paul tells the Greeks that God has overlooked their lack of knowledge about the real God and now calls everyone to repent because he has set up a court day, a day of judgment, when God will judge everyone in righteousness. That judgment will come through the man who is appointed by God. God has shown who this man is because God has raised him from the dead. So Paul has gotten the attention of the learned Gentiles in the great city of Athens. He, was, he has presented his case. He has given them the choice. And when he told them that Jesus, the one appointed by God, was raised from the dead, at that point, Paul lost some of the audience. Some laughed, some dismissed him more politely, saying they would listen to him another day some of that group may have still been open to persuasion but not yet but the holy spirit through paul's teaching did reach a third group of people in that audience they joined paul and believed in the one paul was telling them about paul was a great evangelist he risked his life to spread the word he wasn't successful in his outreach to each and every one that he tried to reach. All we need to do is tell people with our words and with our actions. We are not expected to be 100% successful in our outreach. We present the gospel. We don't have to close the deal or make the sale. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Whether or not they respond is between them and God. We are commanded to be witnesses. God has put us here to serve him in what we say and do. In the fifth chapter of Romans, verses 7 and 8, Paul tells us someone might choose to die for a good man, but that Jesus died for us when we were still sinners. Verse 9 tells us we are justified by the blood of Jesus, and we are saved from the wrath of God by his Son, Jesus. So we were condemned, but now we are justified. We were dead men walking, but now we are alive. In that chapter, Paul tells us that by one man, Adam, came death for us all. And by one man, Jesus, came life for all who will believe in him. In Romans 6-2, Paul says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. In verse 15, he says, Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Paul says we are dead to sin. We obey God and don't give up and sin all the time. In the King James Bible in Romans, Paul says, God forbid, after asking questions like this at least 10 times by my count, Then explains why god forbids it in my bible instead of saying god forbid each of those times paul says may it never be another way of saying it's not okay to go ahead and sin because you are saved by grace paul tells us about his struggle and our struggle our struggle with sin living in the flesh god's law makes us aware of sin breaking god's law brings god's judgment we all break god's law his son jesus died for us so that we may live god's mercy has saved us from god's wrath but yet while we are still on this earth we are tempted and often enough yield to the temptation to sin we confess that sin and god forgives us because we trust in jesus We are compelled, we are under obligation, but not to the flesh. We don't have to live according to the dictates of the flesh. We were slaves, now we are not. If we live according to the flesh, we must die. The flesh does die. But now we are led by the Spirit of God. We are the children of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him, then we will be glorified with him. The suffering for a short time on this earth does not compare with the eternal glory that would be revealed to us. In Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, Paul uses the word creation four times. He is talking about the created world around us. He talks at length about the creation that is now suffering because sin entered the world. He tells us that creation is looking forward to the revealing of the sons of God. When creation, the world around us, will be set free from its corruption. In verse 26, Paul says we sometimes don't know how to pray, and the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I remember a time when I had that kind of experience myself decades ago. When I didn't even acknowledge that I needed to pray about a situation, I had tried to put it out of my mind. I was by myself at home, maybe reading a book or something. From out of nowhere, I was just overcome beyond words while being impressed about a person close to me who was in desperate need of prayer. God took my heart where my mind didn't want to go i was being shallow and the holy spirit went deep for me god causes all things to work together for good for those who love god all things the good the bad and the ugly for those who love god those who are chosen by god he knew us ahead of time we are predestined we are called we are justified and we will be glorified he knew who would turn to Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verses 38 and 39 reinforce the Baptist belief that once saved, always saved. In the Message Bible, it says, the one who died for us, who was raised from the dead for us, is in the presence of God right now, sticking up for us. In that translation, Paul says, I am absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, embraces us. Praise God. God's mercy saves us from God's wrath. All we have to do is receive it. Trust in the one who created us and loves us. Trust in Jesus. My grandpa Gillum was a soldier in World War I. In those days, they didn't call it the first war, first world war, because they didn't know the second world war would come a couple of decades later. They called this war the great war. They also called it the war to end all wars. My grandpa was a young man going into that war. Before the war, he lived in Hood County, Texas. One day, he and another young man had a disagreement about theology. DeWitt Gilliam was a Baptist, and the other guy was a Pentecostal. Today, there are different Pentecostal denominations. They began in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I don't know the specific beliefs of the man encountered by DeWitt. They both communicated with passion about their beliefs. The discussion grew into a heated argument. At some point, it went beyond words. They were fighting. DeWitt was a big, strong guy. The other man didn't want to lose the fight. He pulled out a knife and used it. DeWitt was wounded, but he was now more inspired to win. He won the fight. He went home. He was miles away from a doctor. Cars had been invented, but most people didn't have them. DeWitt lost some blood. He was tired. He went to bed. His bandage didn't keep him from getting a blood soaked mattress. He did survive. After the war, he went on to be a teacher and coach and school superintendent. He was also a farmer. I'm glad DeWitt didn't die in that fight if he had. He wouldn't have got married and had kids and grandkids. My dad would not have been born. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have kids and grandkids. And all from a fight between two men who had a disagreement about their Christian faith. Through the centuries, divisions in the church have led to strong disagreement and persecution and wars. Catholics against Protestants protestants against a different kind of protestant most of that is behind us but even in the 20th century a civil war was fought in ireland between the catholics and the protestants it was more about politics than church it usually is but people justified it in the name of the church we haven't yet seen the war to end all wars sometimes disagreements cause people to leave a church I remember years ago when people at this church disagreed with how a former pastor was doing his job. Some people left. The pastor left to become pastor of a different church. That other church gained a good pastor. Our church had a good interim pastor for a couple of years, while our pastor search committee looked for a permanent pastor. They found a good one. Our new pastor was and is a good pastor. He has been here for more than 20 years. That is unusual. Most pastors stay at one church a much shorter time before they move on. We think we're pretty smart. We build wonderful things and we are impressed. We come up with theories about the things that are are a mystery to us. Then we claim it is no longer a mystery because in our minds it all fits together based on the rules we make so that it will all fit together. Years pass, someone comes up with a new theory that disagrees with the old theory, then people jump on that bandwagon. It's all temporary until the final truth is recognized. In 1 Corinthians one twenty, Paul says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? The old wisdom and the old law are passed away. Paul has been an expert in the old law. It was all washed away by the blood of Jesus. But the devil hasn't ceased to try to impress us with new wisdom. It's, if it's new and it leaves out God, then we don't think we need the gift of salvation from the penalties of sin. We live in a brave new world. We can save ourselves, thank you, or so we may think, because we are spiritually nearsighted. We make new rules to fit into our new secular religion. We say the old ways are foolish because they don't fit into our new lifestyle and frame of reference. We say a man can marry a man, and it doesn't matter that God designed the bodies of men and women to fit together and that only a woman can give birth we say a man can claim to be a woman even though it is obvious god gave him a man's body the new wisdom of the world is really based on the old sin nature but then gone crazy because they want to deny anything that looks like it was designed by god in verse 18 paul said for the world the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to us who are being saved. We don't really need to understand God in order to have faith in God. We need to have faith in God in order to understand real wisdom. Billy Graham pretty much preached the same message every time he got in the pulpit. When he was visiting a seminary in England, In a conference with a group of liberal theologians from the Church of England, one of them complained about the word Billy Graham was preaching to everyone. He told Graham he was trying to set the church back 200 years. Graham said, no, it was his intention to send the church back 2,000 years, all the way back to Jesus. When Billy Graham was preaching, he always preached about Jesus. That was all he talked about. He said it wasn't his job to judge people. That was God's job. He said it wasn't his task to convince people that they were sinners and in need of salvation. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. He said his job was to love people enough to tell them about Jesus. That's what he did. In Billy Graham's old age, his son Franklin and others built a Billy Graham museum to celebrate the life and work of the great evangelist. Billy went through and looked at it. He said, there's too much about Billy here, not enough about Jesus. I haven't been to the museum, and I don't know if they listened to him and changed it. He was a great man because he obeyed God until the day he died. Some see him and his work as foolish, but he led millions of people to come to Jesus. Verse 27 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong.